and the rest of us, let's track down the scriptures. If you have a Bible, go ahead and grab that. If you want to grab one in the rack in the chair in front of you, we'll be on page 827 in the Bibles that we have here. We're in Matthew um, chapter 1. We're doing a little series, a little Christmas series going through Matthew chapters 1 and 2 over these weeks together. And uh, I'll read the text, we'll pray, and then we'll get to work. This is Matthew chapter 1, starting in verse 18. We'll also put the references up on the screen as well. It reads like this. This is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law, and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife. But he did not consummate their marriage until she gave birth to a son, and he gave him the name Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, as we're opening your word this morning, we're praying that by that word, you would speak to us, that through that word, you would speak to us, and that we would come to see Jesus Christ, the Lord and Savior, in a more profound way. Help us to know who he is and, and help us to trust him, help us to believe in him, and help us to experience his saving work in our lives. Lord, during this Christmas season, we want to be incredibly mindful of why it is that you sent Jesus to rescue us. So help us to do that in our time together this morning. We pray in his name. Amen. Amen. So three weeks in Matthew chapters 1 and 2, we're looking at, last week we looked at this history of God's grace, the way that the, even the genealogy of the Lord kind of leads us in that direction of his saving work and his ability to, by his grace and through his might, rescue the unlikely. And today we're looking at the announcement of this this child and who he is and what that means for us. And, and really, we're considering how this child relates to the Bible itself, like the Bible is not at odds with the Lord and what he has come to do. And then next Saturday on Christmas Eve, we'll gather together with family and friends here at the facility, and we will consider this tension that we see between worship and war, whether or not we would surrender to the Lord and allow him to be king and ruler over our personal lives, or whether we will resist him because we have other plans and other ambitions. But today we're looking at the announcement of this Lord and Savior to Joseph, his father. And the first thing that I want to draw your attention to is maybe the most important question you might ever ask. How do we get into heaven? Right? I mean, that's a, that's a really important question. It was put to the Lord, in fact, in Luke I think it was Luke chapter 18, there was one time where a person says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? That question is a significant question. It's something that we 
all need to wrestle with, and it's intuitive to the human experience. In fact, if you look at humanity, regardless of the culture or time period, there is this intuition in humanity that recognizes that there must be a God and that there must be something beyond this life. I mean, that's a key feature, all cultures, all time. Human beings are relentlessly religious. Like, everybody always imagines there's, there's got to be a God. I don't know what he's like, that there's got to be an afterlife. There's got to be more to life than this. And so the question of, if there is an afterlife, if there is a heaven, how would we be admitted into it? What would it, what would it take for us to be able to be admitted into God's kingdom? I think that's at the heart of this passage here and really the heart of the entire gospel account. How would we get into heaven? Now, I've actually put that question to people in various settings, whether it's been at camps talking to kids or, or just talking to people on the street, and you kind of ask people, okay, if there is a heaven, how would you get into that, that heaven? And, and most people, okay, both anecdotally in my personal experience, but also this is stuff that researchers have, have determined as well. Most people, if you ask them, how do you get into heaven? Most people would answer, I have to be a good person. If I were to get into heaven, it would be on account of me being good. And in fact, I've sat with one person who said, I understand I'm not, I'm not perfect, so there's some bad in me, but imagine it being like scales. I think I need to tip the scale toward being good. And if I could outweigh, if I could, you know, outweigh the bad with the good, then I imagine that I would be admitted into the afterlife and, and that heavenly experience. And, and, and that's how most people imagine it. And then they begin to try to figure out, okay, well, what would good look like? And most religions would have some sort of ethical code or some sort of expectations for the religious adherence. Uh, But even in the first century, I think that was a question that people were wrestling with. So when we pick up the account of the Lord's arrival, I think this is also a question that's kind of in the background of what's happening here. How, How do people get into a right relationship with God? How would people get into heaven itself. And the Jewish audience, I think most of them would recognize it must have something to do with the religious document, the scriptures. The scriptures are very, very important for those who have grown up in that culture and in that environment. And so they're, they're thinking, okay, getting into heaven must have something to do with God and his words and his decrees and his law. And you can see this in the New Testament. You can see this tension playing out. I think, it's a, I think it's a key part of the gospel of Matthew. Matthew's writing to that culture, and most of his readers are struggling with that question of, what is the relationship between this son, this Messiah, this Jesus of Nazareth, and what God has been saying all along? And it's hard for people to untangle that, because a lot of people are imagining what the, what the Old Testament says feels so different from what this promised child is up to, and they can't get their heads around it. So the book of Matthew is untangling that for us, and in fact, I'll show you a couple examples just from within the book of Matthew. When Jesus gets up and he preaches his most famous sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, what does he do there? He takes the the Ten Commandments, and he shows his audience how the law of Moses is, is meant to be understood. So he says it like this, you've heard it said, I know you grew up in this culture, I know you've heard these things, I know you're familiar with what the Bible says, you've heard it said, and then he says, but I tell you. 
but I tell you. And over and over again, he's taking those concepts and he's showing them, not that there's a difference between what he's saying and what Moses said. He's saying there's a misunderstanding. All along, this is what it has been about. And in fact, he has to say it very plain for us in in, uh, chapter 5, verses 17 to 20. He says, look, I didn't come to do away with the law. I didn't come to abolish it. I didn't come to set it aside. I came in fulfillment of it. And so we, we begin to sense that this is a big issue in that culture. And even today, I'll, I'll show you how it's important for us today. But, but what we're realizing is the law of God and the Bible and the scriptures are not meant to be at odds with Jesus. But sometimes we misunderstand the Bible and we overlook the Savior. Um, think about the very end of the book of Matthew. The Lord is executed. He's hung on a cross. And I, and I would just ask, who was it that put him there? And you could say, well, soldiers put him there or Pilate put him there. But the, the people who were actually responsible, this is surprising, it's the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. It's people who love the Bible and they're reading the Bible and then they see this individual Jesus of Nazareth and all these radical claims that he's making and the way that he's interacting with the world and they're going, this can't go together. We don't like this. And they get to a point where they're so raging mad that they're like, just kill the guy. Let's be done with him. So, so I want you to feel that as we consider Christmas this year. I want you to feel that tension that's in the book of Matthew, that's in this account here because even Joseph, I mean, I think that's why... Uh, it's, it's highlighted in this passage here. Joseph is somebody who cares deeply about the law. Look at verse 19. We'll put it up on the screens. It says, Joseph, the husband of Mary, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace. He had in mind to divorce her quietly. So he was somebody who was, who was attempting to live in accordance with the law of God. In fact, the literal translation there is he is a just man. And and NIV obviously carries it over as he is faithful to the law. In other words, he's somebody who's designing his life, sitting around going, okay, what has God said exactly? And what I want to do is I want to align my life to what God has said. And so he's thinking, well, I'm engaged to be married to this woman, and she is unfaithful. And she's pregnant with a child that is not my own, And so she has violated what God has decreed about the the holiness of marriage and the sanctity of marriage. And so in his mercy, he's thinking, I will quietly divorce her. I will separate from her. And I, you know, he's kind in the way that he's considering it. He's not going to make a huge ordeal about it. But he is looking to live in accordance with the word of God. And here's here's what we need to feel he almost misapplies the Bible in this case. He almost separates himself from the mother of the Lord. So an angel has to come and explain to him, this child is not illegitimate, and you should not consider yourself to be righteous by divorcing her. You would not actually be following the law of God if you divorce from her. Look at how the angel puts it in verses 20 and following. After he had considered this, after Joseph considered this quiet divorce, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because 
He will save his people from their sins. And then look at verse 22, the front end of it there. It says all this, all these different things, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. In other words, the arrival of this son is not in opposition to what God has been saying. It is, in fact, the fulfillment of it. God has promised that his son would come through a virgin. That's Isaiah, uh, the, the Isaiah prophecy there. And these things are happening in real time. And what Joseph is being rescued from is his misreading of Scripture. He's being rescued from this attempt at living right by God, but actually missing the entire point. That concerns me very, very deeply. And it's something that I've seen over and over again in my own heart and in my ministry. What I've observed time and time again is a lot of Christians who are mature in their understanding of God are always in jeopardy of misreading the Bible. And here's what it is. It is an, it, it expresses itself in what is called self-righteousness. We care about the Bible, we care about what God says, and we're going to live accordingly. And there's a danger in that whereby we begin to misread what God is doing in the world. And we begin to think, I'm doing everything according to what God has said, but then we begin to interact with the world in a way that is void of the Lord himself. Let me show you a couple examples um, from the scripture. Uh, one that you're probably familiar with would be the story of Jonah. Uh, from the book of Jonah in the Bible, Jonah was a prophet, a spokesperson for God, somebody who God would speak to, and he would go and relay that message. And in this case, God says to him, I want you to go to Nineveh, and I want you to preach against it because its wickedness has come up before me. And he says, uh-uh, I'm not going there. Nineveh is awful. Those people are awful. I'm aware of how wicked they are. I want nothing to do with them. And in fact, he resists the call of God, and, and he explains it within the story. So he hops on a boat going in the opposite direction, and a storm overwhelms the boat, and all the sailors on the ship are worried for their lives, and they're asking each other, what's going on here? And Jonah confesses, I'm running from God, and this storm is here because I'm here. And he tells them, you guys need to throw me overboard, and then the storm will die down. And he explains the reason why he's running from God. He gets thrown over, and a, and a fish comes up and swallows him, and then inside the belly of the fish, He's praying, he's talking to God, and he's explaining, I didn't want to go. I don't want to go to Nineveh. Here's why. Because I know that you are a merciful God. If I go to Nineveh and I explain your judgment, they might repent and you might forgive them, and I don't want that to happen. See, Jonah's a very righteous individual. He's looking at the law of God, and he's taking it with incredible seriousness, and he's going, I do not like when people violate what God says. And Nineveh is full of all kinds of people who do exactly that. Well, then, that message, he gets spit back onto the shore, and he gets recommissioned to go there, and he does, and he preaches against Nineveh, and he says, 40 days, and, and this city will be overturned. And then he, at the end of the 40 days, he goes outside the city, and he sits down, and he's got his popcorn, he's ready for judgment to come. He's real excited about this judgment. But the people repent starting with the king all the way down to the commoners, everybody puts on sackcloth and ashes and prays for God's justice to relent. 
and God is merciful and kind, and he forgives them, and it makes Jonah furious. In chapter 4, at the end of the book, you find Jonah sitting out in the desert heat, and a plant grows up and gives him shade. He's very happy about that, but a worm comes by and eats the plant, and it withers and fades, and he's out there scorching, and God says, what's your problem, dude? And he says, well, I'm hot, and I'm miserable, and you're saving people I don't like. And he's like, are you angry about that? He says, yeah, angry enough that I want to die. And God says, huh, that's interesting. You care more about a plant than you care about all these people. Jonah, you've got a, you've got a self-righteousness problem. The story ends, and we don't even know what happens with Jonah, but it's, it's meant to surprise us. There's a tendency within the human heart to say, I care so much about what God says that I actually am out of step with God. I, I would put it like this. The thing that I'm most worried about for our church is not external forces causing us to, you know, experience some kind of conflict or pain. I'm not worried about, you know, the situation with culture and, and all these different things. I'm not worried about the world looking and feeling like the world. The thing that I am most concerned about is the danger within this group right here. The danger within our church to make our religion into an expression of self-righteousness. As a Bible teaching community, as people who are constantly going to the word, the danger that we would have is that we would begin to mishandle the word of God in a way that actually leaves the Lord out, puts him to the side. It, it, it leaves him out in the sense that we miss the fact that God is a saving and a redeeming God. And we become self-righteous and we begin to look at the work of God and we despise it because we can't imagine God loving and saving and redeeming people who are unlike us. So the righteousness that is described here is a righteousness by faith. To answer the question, how do I get into heaven? This child, this is the way. This child, Jesus, is the way in which people can experience the saving work of God. The Bible, start to finish, has been moving us to consider him. The Bible is, is here to help us see that he is the fulfillment of it. In his sermon, in, in uh, the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, he says, look, if your righteousness doesn't surpass that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. And you go, hold on. How could I ever have a righteousness that would exceed theirs? That's all they do. That's all they care about. And what Jesus is, is suggesting is you better find a better righteousness. And the New Testament teases that one out and it shows us the righteousness that we would need to be admitted into heaven is the righteousness of Jesus himself. Paul puts it like this in Romans chapter 3. He says, now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. The whole Bible is about this. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. It's a righteousness by faith. It's his righteousness given to us. That's the good news of the gospel. The Lord has come to make a way for, for us to gain access into heaven, and it's not because we're such great people or because we're trying so stinking hard it's because we're trusting in the work that he accomplished on our behalf. It's a righteousness by faith, first to last. Well, then we have a question. Okay, how did that happen? How does that work? Who, who is this child? 
And here in our story, we find out a few different things about him based off of the titles that are assigned to him. First off, he's Messiah. Look at verse 18. This is how the birth of Jesus, the Messiah, came about. He is a king of some sort. Messiah is a term that, that, that's freighted with all kinds of expectation and excitement over God establishing his kingdom in the world. Messiah is used, according to Walt Kaiser, 39 times in the Old Testament as a noun, and is translated into the word Christ, or Lord, in the uh, Septuagint. But it's talking about this anointed one who will establish the kingdom of God in real time. And so we expect it. We expect that when he shows up, he will make all things right. And this is the, the uh, announcement of his birth. Jesus the Messiah, and how this came about. But one of the things that we expect then is, okay, if God's setting up his kingdom in this world, then we think everything's going to go well for the people of God. Everything's just going to, you know, gas prices are coming down, uh, obeying God is going up, like all these things are kind of trending in the right direction. But, but then he shows up, and it's very unassuming. He doesn't look like a king. He doesn't arrive in a kingly fashion. It's not a stately appearance. He, he shows up in humility. And that offends us, and that's one of the reasons why so many people have rejected him. But he is, in fact, the Messiah. He is the king who is establishing the kingdom of God on this earth. He's the Messiah. Secondly, he has an incredible name. Look at verse 21. Mary will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus. Here's why. It is because he will save his people from their sins. He's Savior. His name means Savior. And now we begin to sense what his ministry really is. He's the king, but what he's doing right now is he's saving us, not from those boogeymen of culture, not from the bad guys out there. He's saving us from ourselves. He's saving us from our sin. The thing that we have to reckon with is the fact that our sin is the problem, and Jesus has come to deal with that. He's saving us from ourselves and from our waywardness. He's saving us from becoming self-righteous individuals. He's our Savior. A third title that's given to him here shows up in verse 23. It says, The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. It's an incredible title because it's showing us this beautiful blessing that we have in Christ it's reminding us that Jesus is bringing us back to God. Humanity in their sinfulness has forfeited its relationship with the maker, with God himself. And at one point we were in a garden, but we were ejected from that garden. We lost that familiarity and that face-to-face -face interaction with God. But Jesus has come to bring us back to God. 1 Peter 3.18, Christ died for us, the righteous for the unrighteous to bring us to God, and he is God with us. Not only is he bringing us to the Father, but he's also the expression of God in real time. He's God near us. He's God with us. He's showing us that, that God is so concerned with getting us back that he draws near to us in the good news of the gospel. He is Emmanuel. So who is this child? He is the king the anointed one. He is the Savior who rescues us from ourselves and from our sin. He is God with us. So here's the question we have to ask. 
will we trust him? Will we believe in him for who he is and what he can accomplish? Will we respond with him to obedience and faith? The answer is is given to us even in the narrative because Joseph gives us an example of what it looks like. He hears the message and it is well received. Look at verse 24. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and he took Mary home as his wife. God is speaking and Joseph receives that message and says, I'm on it. I hear you loud and clear. And verse 25 says, he did not consummate their marriage until she gave birth to a son, and he gave him the name Jesus. In other words, Joseph hears the message from the angel, and he puts two and two together, and he says, the Bible is leading us to this child, and I am going to respond with faith. I'm going to listen to the voice of God, and I'm going to entrust that Jesus is who he claims to be. The question for us then is, will you do the same thing? Will you hear the message of Jesus Christ and will you respond with faith, believing that he is king and savior, that he is the anointed one and that he is God with us? This is the season that we all get to consider this. Will we entrust ourselves to the Lord and experience his saving work? May that be so for every one of us. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the good news of the gospel. We thank you for the announcement of the coming King and Savior, Jesus Christ, Emmanuel. Lord, we pray that every one of us in here would respond with faith to the good news of who he is and what he has accomplished. We pray, Lord, that you would protect us from self-righteousness from reading the Bible and making it something other than a document that leads us to trusting in Christ. We pray for the way that we can mishandle Scripture and become abrasive and rude and condemning and judgmental. Soften us, Lord, to your mercy and your grace. You are a gracious God, abounding in love and faithfulness. Help us to become more like you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.